quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The news continues, so let's hand it over to Michael Smirconish in CNN Tonight. John, thank you. I am Michael Smirconish. Welcome to CNN Tonight. On this eve of Christmas Eve, with Omicron spreading far and wide and not nearly enough testing to meet the massive demand, a new report from Vanity Fair suggests the Biden administration dismissed a bold plan months ago to ramp up rapid testing ahead of the holidays. It's being characterized by the magazine as a blueprint for how to avoid what is happening at this very moment, meaning the scramble nationwide to get a COVID test nearly two years into this pandemic, Endless lines, hours of people waiting so that they can celebrate Christmas safely with others. But is that what really happened? The White House says they didn't dismiss anything. We're about to talk to a doctor who attended the White House meeting where that very proposal was made on October 22nd. Vanity Fair says it got hold of the 10-page plan that included a testing surge to prevent holiday COVID surge. The idea was to push the administration to get out rapid home COVID testing to Americans so that they could screen themselves and reduce transmission before the holidays. The proposal purportedly called for an estimated 732 million tests per month, a number that would require a major ramp up of manufacturing capacity, but that didn't happen, not at that scale. Now the administration is scrambling to catch up with demand. President Biden promised Tuesday that half a billion free at-home tests would be sent out to any Americans who wanted one, but no contract has been signed yet to purchase the new tests. The White House says it's still working to finalize it. The website to sign up for them isn't running yet because the tests aren't ready yet. And it's also not clear how Americans who don't have internet access can get one. So what he's promising to do may be too late to pull off before the variant further divides and conquers. When questioned this week about the lack of availability of tests nationwide with the pandemic worsening, President Biden said this. Uh, If you go to the pharmacy, we hear this over and over again, empty shelves, no test kits. Is that a failure? No, I don't think it's a failure. I think it's, uh, you could argue that we should have known a year ago, six months ago, two months ago, a month ago, I've ordered half a billion of the pills, 500 million pills. I mean, excuse me, 500 million test kits that are going to be available to be sent to every home in America if anybody wants them. But um, the answer is, yeah, I wish I had thought about ordering a half a billion pills two months ago before COVID hit here. How do we get it wrong? Nobody saw it coming. Nobody in the whole world. Who saw it coming? I- He said that he wished he thought about ordering 500 million at-home tests two months ago, but three months ago, he promised 300 million. His spokesperson addressed the concerns earlier. The president and the team did take steps to increase capacity. Of course, if there would have been 500 billion tests and we would have known that there were these, uh, you know, very transmissible variants... Uh, That's one thing. The president using the Defense Production Act and uh, uh, investing $3 billion allowed for there to be an increase in production so we could order the huge number of supply that we're ordering now. 
I want to bring in a longtime advocate for rapid testing who attended that October White House meeting we just told you about. He told Vanity Fair, quote, it's undeniable that the administration took a vaccine only approach and the government, quote, didn't support the notion of testing as a proper mitigation tool. That expert is Dr. Michael Minna, chief science officer at EMED, former assistant professor of epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Minna. So was there a plan for mass distribution of rapid testing at that meeting of October 22nd? And if so, why wasn't it acted upon? Well, the, the meeting was an inf informal and informative meeting to try to um, suggest to the administration that there are certain actions that could be taken to help us not end up where we are today. Uh, but I, I want to uh, emphasize that actually I, I, I would say that the administration did start acting uh, in the couple of months since then. Uh, and it's, it's, it's easy for us to uh, put together a, a document that says that we need a lot of tests, but, uh, but we didn't have the tests at the time. And I would say, uh, in fairness, the administration has been ramping up testing since, and I have been probably the, the greatest critic about the United States not having enough tests, but I also do recognize that those tests have, in fact, existed. Vanity Fair is pretty definitive in saying that there was a document. It was 10 pages long. The, the advocacy was for 732 million tests per month. Was it raised with that level of specificity? Uh, well, the, the actual amount was raised, um, yes. Uh, but uh, what I would say is that there's been, a, there's been massive efforts since then. Uh, so I don't want to be too critical. I've been very critical in the past. Uh, but, you know, the, the administration has put aside $3 billion since then, plus the additional $500 million that's been suggested. So that's been a massive, massive forward-looking plan. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is, is see what, what has happened since then. I think the bold initiative, had it come to fruition, would have been amazing, uh, but it would have been very, very difficult in the last two months. I had started talking about this, you know, a year and a half ago, and, uh, and so we ended up in October, uh, and since then, I would say that there has been a lot of forward momentum, and so I, I do think it's important to give credit where credit's due in, in this particular case. Okay, I'm, I, I'm not going to continue to drill down on it other than to say I think you've confirmed it and have said thereafter there was a turn for the better. Yes, I, I would argue that, that there has been, and, uh, and I'm looking forward okay. to you know, Americans getting these. Yep. Dr. Minna, has there been a, a de-emphasizing of testing in part out of the belief that if we're talking about testing, we're not talking about vaccination and we need to be talking about vaccination first and foremost. Uh, I would say that that has uh, existed. Yes, um, we did early in the early in this year. We we got the vaccine started, and you know there's an argument to be made for putting all of our effort into vaccines. I think uh, probably there should have been a lot, uh, the majority of effort put into vaccines. But we should always keep our eye on the ball that uh, this virus is a pandemic virus that can change and morph and shift at any time, as we're seeing. And so we've always needed to keep all of the mitigation strategies that we can. And I've said in the past that we probably shouldn't have all of our uh, eggs in the vaccine uh, basket. And I think now we're seeing uh, some evidence of why, uh, why that's important. Uh, but certainly having the vaccines as front and center, I think any epidemiologist or physician would argue that that's the, the most critical. But I've argued, uh, of course, over two years now that testing 
is one of the most fundamental uh, uh, tools that we could have in our public health response to this virus. So what needs to be done now? Well, I think, uh, you know, we can't materialize two or five billion tests overnight to really get uh, to get frequent testing out into Americans' hands. We have to recognize that. So given the, 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 the hand that we're dealt at the moment, I think we need to be very strategic about how we use the rapid tests that we have at our disposal. Uh, thus far, the rapid tests have been uh, sort of spread out across the country, but not in a very strategic uh, and careful manner. And I think if we use strategy around these in the same way that when we go to war with another country, we have strategy. We don't just send troops all over the place. We can do that here and we can make the tests go much further. We can make them very valuable if we put a limited number of tests where they will be most effective. Dr. Michael Minna, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Looking for more perspective on this right now as to where it leaves us and what we can see in the weeks ahead. Retired Admiral Brett Giroir is here, the White House point man during testing for the Trump administration. Admiral, thanks for being here. A very basic question. Why is this testing issue so important? What is it that we will do with the result of the tests once they're administered? Well, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, Dr. Mena worked with me very closely when I was in the administration and appreciate his support. Tests are going to be helpful for two reasons. Number one, uh, to screen individuals who may come in contact with high-risk individuals to make sure that those individuals like college students can't pass the virus to an elderly person or a person with cancer. But secondly, and extremely important in the last 48 hours, we need early testing for those high-risk people who could benefit from those oral drugs from Merck and from Pfizer. This is part of that strategic placement of tests. Until we have a, a billion per month, we're going to have to give the test to people that can benefit from them most. And part of those are the high-risk people who are eligible for oral therapy. And secondly, as Dr. Minna has always said, and I always said, uh, to test people to prevent them from spreading the virus to others who are at high risk. Well, 500 million doesn't sound like enough, right? And that's the number that the president is speaking of. Yeah, 500 million. um, Remember, before I left the Trump administration, we distributed 180 million rapid tests through the states for free. These are the same tests. They are just now for home use. 500 million, you can't blanket the country. You're going to need about a billion per month, which was our goal to have a billion per month. For the 500 million, you're going to have to be strategic. And that means use those tests wisely. For example, in our administration, we sent them to nursing homes, assisted livings, uh, historically black colleges, the tribes, um, very high risk groups, uh, certain inner city groups. Uh, For the 500 million now, I think you're going to have to distribute them to the elderly, to the people with comorbid conditions. We know who they are, right? We have the Medicare roles. We could send them specifically. And anyone who would meet the criteria for oral antivirals, because remember, the earlier you test and can get on those oral oral antivirals, the more likely you're going to save your life. So we need to do them strategically. 500 million is not enough. Right. How realistic is it? if the contract has not been signed and if we're not ramped up for the manufacturer, that there could really be 500 million in January or even February. Yeah, there's not, uh, you know, I'm not in the administration now. I don't think you can do that, right? There was a lull in investment between January and October, and now the pieces are coming together. I guess Dr. Minna and group 
kind of catalyzed the administration. But um, that's when you saw lines like the Abbott line shutting down because of a lack of demand. And it's very hard to catch up from behind. If we had invested during that time consistently, we might be at that level. And in fact, we projected we should have been at a billion by July or August, but we're not at that level now. So we're playing catch up. So that 500 million is not so enough the, to give everybody tests. The Vanity Fair story to which I made reference, pretty hard hitting with regard to the approach taken by the Biden administration. It also begs the question, was enough done on Donald Trump's watch, on your watch to set the stage for where we are today? You know, I think I really think we did. Remember, we already sent out 180 million rapid tests by uh, January of 2020. Um, and we were on a pace to be at a level of rapid test, um, at least two to 300 million by April and probably half a billion by June. Uh, we had made the investments, uh, but you know, you got to constantly invest. And it's not only the federal government's fault. Uh, there was a low demand from the public. And remember, the states had about $30 billion in testing money. And before I left, we put these tests on what's called the GSA schedule. So every state could buy as many as they want for $5 a test, and they didn't do that. The federal government didn't do that in the industry crater. That's why we're behind right now. We have to play catch up, but let's look forward. Let's use those 500 million strategically, protect the elderly, protect the vulnerable, and make sure that everybody who can get the oral drugs from Merck and Pfizer can get them. Quick final question. I also learned from Vanity Fair, maybe something that I should have already known, that in Europe there are 200 different types of rapid tests. They sell for about a buck fifty, and they're plentiful. Like, what are they doing that we're not doing? So this is a regulatory issue, and Dr. Minna has spoken about this, and I certainly work from inside the administration. Um, there are there are regulatory standards here um, that approach these more as a individual test to make a diagnosis versus a public health measure. And I do agree that although the FDA has done a great job, we do need to approve more very quickly. That's one reason at, at the end of the administration, uh, we allowed EUA authority to be under me as the assistant secretary to rapidly uh, uh, approve uh, these kinds of tests to get them on the market. That was reversed. So I think we're back where we started from, um, you know, at the early part of 2020. Uh, there needs to be regulatory reform and it needs to happen quickly. Admiral Giroir, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Social media reaction already coming into tonight's program. What do we have? We have a long one. That's what it is. It's too little, too late. The debacle that is testing should have been resolved in 2020, 20, not 2022. The source of the problem isn't a lack of tests. It's a bureaucratic bottleneck at the FDA, a problem that the president should be able to solve. Well, Admiral uh, Jawad just addressed that issue. I, I, I mean, I don't know if the rest of you were aware of this. I learned it from reading in that piece, and I assume it to be true. The tests are much more plentiful in Europe, up to 200 where we have, what, 13, 15 that have been approved? They sell for a buck 50, and they're all over the place. Um, and he just confirmed what you're saying, which is that it is a regulatory issue. I also heard Dr. Minnis say that while things have gotten better, there was indeed a meeting on October 22nd and a proposal that was made for 700 plus million tests and it wasn't acted on for whatever reason. We'll continue to follow this story. Something unusual has been happening this week and that is that Donald Trump joined the war on disinformation, meaning he's on the side of truth, at least when it comes to vaccine conspiracies. So what is Trump up to? Insight from a great political mind, Scott Jennings is here next.
Is Donald Trump no longer lockstep with his base? If you need proof that his call and response relationship of those 2016 rallies isn't what it once was, take a look at this. Yeah, more say, people have died under COVID this year, by the way, yeah, under Joe Biden, right. than under you. And more people took the vaccine this year. So people are questioning how... Well, uh, no, the vaccine worked, but yeah. some people aren't taking it. The ones, the ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. But it's still their choice. And if you take the vaccine, you're protected. Look, the results of the vaccine are very good. And if you do get it, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine. Traditional political wisdom is to play up your accomplishments, and the vaccines certainly are that for Trump, so the advice he's getting directly from people like Bill O'Reilly makes perfect sense to me. I told him that today, he called me, and I said, this is good for you. This is good that people see another side of you, not a political side. You told the truth, you believe in the vax, your administration did it, and you should take credit for it, because it did save, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of lives. But just this week, O'Reilly saw firsthand that some Trump loyalists don't like hearing that he got the booster. Both the president and I are vaxxed. And uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it, too. Okay, so... um, Oh, don't, 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 no, no. That's all. There's a very tiny group over there. Scott Jennings joins me now to dissect. What's going on here, Scott? Well, I think President Trump, first of all, should be credited for saying the right thing. And I think to be fair to him, he has said this throughout the year, not as forcefully as he had in the past week, but in February, everybody get your shot. March, I would recommend it. April, the vaccine is a great thing. July, I recommend you take it. August, once you get the vaccine, you get better. So throughout the year, since he left office, he has said the right thing on the vaccine. What's true this week, I think, Michael, is that it's been far more forceful and it's been done in the face of some booing. And it was done in an interview in which the interviewer, Candace Owens, was about to unfurl a massive conspiracy theory and misinformation about the vaccine. And he interrupted her and he stopped her and he corrected her and he forcefully made the case for the vaccine. That's what's different is the the forceful nature of it. And I think, frankly, it's because he sees advantage in this. He thinks Joe Biden is failing. He thinks he's flailing. He thinks there's room to run politically, and he is taking advantage of it. I don't question the legitimacy of your citations. I just wish he had been doing this all along. And politically speaking, I've always thought it was the stronger play. That base is not going to abandon him. And why wouldn't he take credit for what is arguably the greatest accomplishment that occurred on his watch? I mean, maybe it's a realization now of what I just said that he's in a very good position to to take that nomination if he wants it. So why not go ahead and lay claim to it? Well, you you raise a point about his relationship with his base. And in many cases, he didn't lead the base. The base led him. It's one of the core reasons he was never able to make a big deal on immigration. A deal was there to be made, but he feared backlash from his base. And so I think on this particular case, what's noteworthy is, is that he's apparently set that fear aside and he's decided to be more forceful about something on which his base feels very passionate, which is, you know, this vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccination altogether. So it's noteworthy that he is standing up to them and trying to lead them. Now, the question is, will it cause anybody to change their behavior? I've always been skeptical that people who don't want the vaccine today are waiting for any politician to tell them what to do or to get medical advice from a politician. But it is well, a good like thing to find that he's out. saying what he's saying, and he's not, allow- he's not allowing himself to be led 
down a very, very negative road when it comes to this point she was making. Well, people took the vaccine, more people are dying. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's bunk. He knows so, it, and it so was good that he stood up. My view is he ought to be speaking more about this issue in the very manner that he did and not another issue for which we're going to see an anniversary in the first week of January. Let me put on the screen something Karl Rove wrote in the Wall Street Journal that that resonates with me. He said, still, Mr. Trump's political sway won't be measured only in primary victories, but also in how many of his favorites fare in general elections in swing states and competitive districts. Here's the key part. All these candidates face a critical choice. Should they focus on Mr. Trump's claims that the 2020 election was stolen to protect their endorsement, or should they make their race about providing a check on President Biden and risk incurring Trump's wrath? My point, Scott, is this. Trump ought to be talking all about, you know, Operation Warp Speed and not relitigating the events of January 6th. What are your thoughts? Yeah, totally agree with you. Uh, the, the Operation Warp Speed was his greatest achievement, one of the greatest achievements of any recent presidency, especially in the face of what we were looking at with the coronavirus, unprecedented uh, a crisis facing the country. His continued focus on January 6th is going to hurt him in the future because if he does run for president again, there's going to be a reckoning. And the reckoning is this. Will the American people entrust someone who, frankly, in my opinion, violated their oath of office on that particular day with the most awesome political power on the face of the earth once again. If he runs, he's going to be reckoned with that question. If he doesn't run, a Republican will be having to reckon with that question as well. I don't know that it will be as impactful in the midterms. I agree with Carl that you should focus on being a check on Biden, not being a conspiracy theorist about the election. Where the reckoning comes, though, is in 2024, when the race for the White House demands an answer Will you act the way you acted on January 6th, or will you put that aside and admit you were wrong, it was wrong, and the election was fair? Never, never do I see him saying that, even though it's the right answer. Scott Jennings, thank you so much for being here. And, I really and, appreciate it. And by it. the way, by the way, of course, and by yeah. the way, what you just said is this is that makes him the most that makes him the most limiting Republican to be nominated. Because if you're unwilling to admit what you did was frankly a violation of your oath of office. It limits the number of votes you can get. He's already lost the popular vote twice. It virtually guarantees he'd lose it again. O'Reilly gave him good advice. I say this to my radio audience and sometimes they misinterpret what I'm saying. You may not agree with his list of accomplishments because ideologically you don't buy into them, but he has a list of accomplishments starting with the Supreme Court and he ought to be talking politically about that and not this. Thank you, appreciate your being here. Thanks. Uh, Social media. What do we got? It will move his supporters toward DeSantis. It might. It might. I'm not sure. I mean, DeSantis is obviously not not doing what Trump is now doing in this regard. And DeSantis is not alone. But um, I think I think DeSantis can't pursue the nomination if Trump wants it. I've said consistently that if Donald Trump wants it and is healthy, solvent, unindicted, then it's his. And nobody could stop him from securing the nomination. And I'll stand by that. As for a general, I have no idea. For the second time this year, a white former Minnesota police officer convicted in the death of a black man. What do the guilty verdicts in Kim Potter's manslaughter trial mean for police nationwide after she said she mistakenly drew a gun instead of a taser and killed Dante Wright? Legal perspective from Paul Callen is next.
After 27 hours of deliberation, jurors found Kim Potter, the former Minnesota police officer, guilty on both counts, first and second degree manslaughter. Remember, back in April, she shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop after she said she accidentally drew her gun instead of a taser, as seen in this disturbing body cam video. CNN legal analyst Paul Callen joins me now. Paul, I was wrong about the outcome in this one. I thought they were hung. How about you? You know, Michael, I had the same feeling that it was going to be a hung jury. And, um, you know, I felt that way and probably you did as well, because historically, juries give cops the benefit of of the doubt when it's a close case. And um, her immediate reaction and sorrow for the shooting suggested that it was, in fact, uh, an accident. But Sometimes, as the prosecutor said, an accident can be a crime as well. And that's what the jury found in this case. One of the outs that jurors could have given her was to accept the defense argument that even if it were the gun she intended to use, that was justified. But they didn't buy that. Yes, they could have gone with that defense because... Uh, Dante uh, Wright was when they were trying to handcuff him and he was being uh, he was picked up for a legitimate reason. They made the stop uh, and then they found out he had an outstanding warrant and it was a warrant actually for waving a gun in a public place. And um, he then jumped back into the car and was going to pull away. And that's only when she intervened with uh, what she thought was a taser. But of course, it was her Glock and uh, killed uh, Dante Wright. Do you give advice to clients about how to look for a mugshot, and if so, what is it? <laughs> um, well, I've had some celebrity clients in the past, and I so I can't comment on that. But um, wait, no, wait a minute. Was, I, was, I Nick, was Nick Nolte? Was Nick Nolte one of them? Because we all remember <laughs> the Nick Nolte shot. Yeah, yeah. No, I those those mug shots always become classics. Um, no, I can't say that I ever have given uh, advice to them. I can tell you this though: my brother, who works for the NYPD and takes mug shots, the advice he gives people if they don't do what he tells them, uh, they can come back in 24 hours, and he sends them back to a cell. And then they're very cooperative when they come back. They're good. Well, looking, I don't, uh, Paul. I don't know if if you have what we call return. I don't know if you can see the Kim Potter mug shot that was taken today, but I don't know. It's just, it's not what we're accustomed to. She's smiling. She looks good. She's just been convicted on both counts. It's, it's not what we're accustomed to seeing. And I just, I just wondered what your reaction would be. You know, I have, I don't have a return, so I can't see what you're seeing on screen, but I know that when the verdict came down this afternoon, I was surprised at her utter lack of emotion. Now, remember, she broke down after firing the fatal shot, but she also broke down for an extensive period of time in court. And here the jury comes back and sure. finds her guilty sure. on all counts, and she barely reacted to it at all. So uh, she's in a strange place, obviously, since this conviction. Yeah, no doubt. Paul Callen, thank you so much for being here. Wish you all the best for the holidays. You too, Michael. Take care. Next, we'll turn to a much different kind of legal battle underway. This one's right here in my hometown of Philadelphia. A mass exodus of prosecutors in the DA's office while the murder rate soars. Is this about clashing with the man in charge or a larger pattern nationwide? My guest, a former prosecutor, Chris Lynette, will tell us why he left, what he's seeing now, and what it means for our justice system. That's next. 
A new breed of progressive prosecutors has taken the reins in major cities on both coasts. Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner is one of them, and now his city is being rocked by crime. Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon carjacked in the city's FDR Park just yesterday. Police say the carjackings in the city this year are more than triple the number from 2019, and that's on top of the city's already record high murder rate. It's so bad, the Wall Street Journal says criminals feel it's urban hunting season. But even if police catch the criminals, there may not be enough manpower to put them behind bars. The Philadelphia Inquirer started digging into what it calls the disarray of the district attorney's office. The newspaper reports the office lost 261 attorneys during the first term of DA Larry Krasner. About 70 of those were attorneys recruited by Krasner. For some context, the office employs a total of only 340 lawyers. We asked the DA for comment, but there was no response. My next guest is a former assistant district attorney who worked under Krasner, Chris Lynette. Thank you so much for being here. Chris, is this a managerial issue or an ideological issue? Because the most stunning thing that I read in the Inquirer coverage was a quote from another prosecutor who has left who said that Krasner would hire people who would cry after convicting someone. That's... Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, uh, Michael. And it's both. Uh, it's a managerial issue that bleeds into the ideology. Uh, the top management, Larry Krasner, um, is just unaware of what line prosecutors need to do every day to make sure that justice is done in Philadelphia courtrooms. And to, to go off that, the ideology of the office is has nothing to do with solving serious violent crime in the city of Philadelphia and everything to do with conviction integrity, exoneration, which is about 2% of what the office does. So it's just, it bleeds over and it makes it an unbearable place to work if you're really interested in doing good trial work and serving the people of Philadelphia well. Something else that I learned, nearly 60% of the lawyers in the office have joined the office in the last four years. I mean, how, how could those who are trying cases have the requisite experience that's necessary? They, they don't. And, and they, I, I worked with these people, so I don't want to disparage them at all because they are working really hard. But the fact is, is that the office has undergone a massive brain drain. You've seen seniority, people, people with high seniority, tons of trial experience leave in droves. And so there's no one to go to. You know, when I was in jury trials, I'd only been there for four years. I was the most one of the most senior attorneys in the unit. And that's a stressor for me. That was a stressor for my colleagues. Um, but it was a stressor, too, on the victims because they had to deal with inexperienced prosecutors. They didn't pick the prosecutors. We were just assigned to them. And that made them question whether they should participate in the justice system at all. So another quote from the piece from a prosecutor no longer there. Krasner, more interested in protecting defendants than crime vic- than everyday citizens and crime victims. I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing that you'd say in a 30-second commercial against someone you were running against, but in this case, it's people who are in the office who are saying it. Absolutely, and they're people who really care and really work hard. And it's interesting you reference a 30-second commercial. Everything in the office is politics. It's like every meeting is a public speech for Larry to advertise his campaign. It's never about, here's the new technology you have to make your, your cases easier to try. Here's the new support system we have for you to make sure your victims get uh, correct outreach. Here's the new you know, technology. You're going to make it easier to present cases to juries. Um, so it was really just all about ideology and nothing about getting the people on the ground what they needed to do the jobs that they needed to do.
Chris, a final thought. It's not just Philadelphia. There's been this trend toward electing progressive prosecutors across the country. I just happen to know better what's going on in my own backyard than I do the other cities that we see so much about in the news. What, what, what do you think, what do you think accounts for this pendulum swing and will it swing back given stories like this? Uh, I, I think it's, there's a great risk that it could swing back uh, because the fact is, is that um, it's, it's one of those things where it was you had an issue with mass incarceration for nonviolent crimes. Um, that is not a controversial issue anymore, and that's going by the wayside. But the question is, is baseline confidence is can these progressive prosecutors bring in people to try these cases fairly and justly so that the people feel that they can trust the process? And so far in Philadelphia, that answer is clearly no. Chris Lynette, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Have a great holiday. You too. Okay. Favorite story of the week. I have an early holiday treat for you. Check this out. So why are those students cheering so wildly? For third grade teacher Kathleen Fitzpatrick, she is here, and I'll show you what led to that incredible moment of joy next. All right, I wanna show you what might just be the most unforgettable cup of hot chocolate that some third graders in Washington, D.C. will ever drink. The reason that the cocoa is so good begins with a recess for the record books. It started with a proposal. Ms. Fitz promised her students hot chocolate for everyone if she made the full court shot. Watch for yourself. Ms. Fitz, as she is known, is Kathleen Fitzpatrick, and she joins me now. Ms. Fitz, 8 million views, at least the last time I checked, but you should know I'm good for at least a million of them because I can't stop watching. Who was more excited, you or those kids? I think it was a tie between who was more excited. I think, like, I was shocked that it went in. I, I, I mean, I knew it was going to go in, but at the same time, I was just hoping because I had promised them hot chocolate. So it had to go in. <laughs> hey, I, I know you are uh, the pride of Delco. You're like the biggest thing to come out of Delco <laughs> since mayor of Easttown. Am I right? You're doing a little bit of a Rocky dance there. Is that a Philly thing? <laughs> you know, I guess you could say it's a Philly thing. I think it's just my ex pure excitement that I had made the shot. You played basketball at both St. Joe's and Rutgers. Did you ever hit a buzzer beater? I have, yes. Which was more exciting, this one or whichever one you're thinking of? I had a, I had a buzzer beater at Rutgers, but I think this was more exciting than the buzzer beater at Rutgers. <laughs> 
Who is reaching out for you? Like, I, I have to believe everybody who knows you is like, oh my God, I saw the video. So I assume it's like old friends and stuff, but anybody famous? I mean, tell me what's going on in your world. You know, I'm actually not very good on social media. I don't even have a Twitter. <laughs> I have an Instagram. So my few friends have been updating me like these people are tweeting this. These people are posting it. So I've been hearing it from like my closest friends and my brothers who are keeping me updated on everything. But um, it's just it's pretty crazy and surreal that it's gotten to this point. When so when did it hit you? This this was what two days ago, right? I think you were on break today. Today's the first day of break. Yeah. So like, when did you realize? Oh my God, that shot that I made is now being viewed around the planet. The shot happened on Friday, and I promised ah. them the hot chocolate on Monday, and the video was posted on our school's account. I think it was Sunday night. Uh, so. It really like Monday and a little Tuesday was kind of slow. And then yesterday uh, in school, a lot of kids were saying things like, Miss Fitz, this video has gone viral. And, and kids, you know, can exaggerate. So like, no way, no way. And then my friends and family started reaching out like, no, this thing is viral. Uh, so it really was yesterday and then today that it really hit me like, oh, this thing has gone pretty viral. Well, you paid the debt. That was my next question. I'm glad that you've settled it. And what, one just final point, if I might. You know, we live in difficult times for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the pandemic. And this gave me such joy and has given so many people such joy. It's the craziest thing. Like you sunk this, this long shot on a playground in Washington and it just takes my mind off everything else that frankly I've been discussing here tonight. So, uh, so thanks for that moment of joy. Of course. I think we can all use a little bit of, of joy and laughter these days. So uh, we were glad we could yep. do that for everyone. <laughs> Have a great holiday. Thank you so much, Kathleen Fitzpatrick. You as well. Thank you. We'll be right back with reaction to tonight's program. Thanks so much for watching. Here's some of the social media reaction that has come in during the course of the program. They haven't even signed, signed a contract with the manufacturers, but we'll have them in 30 days. If all it takes is 30 days, why hasn't Joe done this already or sooner when we really need them? This is BS. Uh, I don't think we're getting them in January. I think that's pretty clear, right? They haven't signed a contract. That was reported today. The website is not yet functional because they haven't signed a contract. How could it be? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 500 million doesn't seem like it's going to get here anytime soon. And perhaps by the time we do have them, this Omicron wave will have passed. I hope they're able to turn it around. I hope they're able to generate them quickly. Um, and I found it interesting tonight because we had Dr. Minna, who was one of the participants at that October 22nd White House uh, online meeting where they talked about, you know, 700 plus million being necessary, but they didn't order them at that time either. So sounds like there's enough blame to go around. Let's hope they get it sorted out jiffy quick. What else came in tonight? Smirkanish, people are giving 45 credit for his pivot on vaccines. I see it as damage control. He's trying to clean up his position on things because he is seriously considering a 2024 run. People, please don't be fooled. So that Broadway costume guy, love your handle, by the way, 
Look, I talked about this with Scott Jennings, it, and, and Scott very quickly rattled off a number of instances where Donald Trump has spoken of the need for vaccination in the past. I'd love to go through each one of those. I'm sure that he did say it, but I'll bet he was questioned before he, it was prompted, right? Here's the point I'm trying to make. I wish President Trump had been saying that all along. That would be in the nation's best interest, and frankly, in his own political best interest. I, I've, I've thought that he's just been afraid to offend his base because I remember him saying something previously. I think it was in Alabama, and there was blowback. I remember Lindsey Graham in South Carolina doing an event outdoors at a country club, I want to say, referencing vaccination. The audience reacted negatively. He backed off. So I'll take what President Trump is offering. And frankly, I wish he'd been saying it a heck of a lot sooner. And maybe he realizes now, you know what? It's not only good for the country, but there's a political upside as well because the base isn't gonna go anywhere. Those are just my two cents. Thank you so much for watching. I'll be back here on Monday night. Merry Christmas to everybody. Don Lemon Tonight starts now with Laura Coates sitting in. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.